Brokering and improving source texts explains how his crowd-pooling plays rapidly had an audience, and how he rapidly came to be known as a man of the theater. The pillaging of sources also accounts for the early dates of several plays, and the fact that plays with confusingly similar names, plots, and characters existed before Shakespeare could have written them. Substantially freed from the need to conceive of scenarios, characters, and plots, Shakespeare could focus on writing and the drama. Stuart Kells, Shakespeare's Library When we think of Shakespeare, too often the image comes to mind of a lone writer hunched over his parchment, scribbling away on his quill as the candle burns down to the wick. There are no books around him, no stories he is pulling from. Just an author, his mind, and his pen. That's not accurate, though. That is a carefully curated image designed to raise Shakespeare to this higher level, above all other authors. We have to think differently, though. We have to see Shakespeare for what he was to properly appreciate the work behind the works. That is what Eli and I will be discussing today, Shakespeare as a writer. We will look at how he got his stories and honed his skills. Grab your quill and ink. It's time to meet Shakespeare. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Breaking Bard. I'm your host, Sarah, also known as Rape Good Scholar on a tiny corner of the internet. I am joined, as most times, by my husband, Eli. And our dog, Barkamedes. Yes, he's here too. I don't think he'll contribute much, though. He'll contribute back here with a cutie. But anyway, we are here today to paint a picture of a realistic picture of Shakespeare as a writer. I think we've touched on it in almost every episode, but I think it was worth dedicating a full episode to. Yeah, it is the theme of the podcast, Breaking Bard, to look at how he was as a writer. I, as a writer and a person and kind of some of the more details, but yeah, I felt it was worth kind of breaking this down and talking it out. To really put your thesis out there. Yeah, and I think, you know, because I think too often... We think of Shakespeare as this, like, lone genius writing stories that just, like, busted out of his own head. And that's just not true. It's it's hard to think of kind of a less true image of Shakespeare as a writer. Um, <laughs> well, because... I think a few people did, and they made movies about it. Oh, if you can't uh, catch this, audience, my wife just stared into space and sighed. I assume you're referring to Anonymous. I am referring to Anonymous, because as we all know, Shakespeare in Love is a perfect documentary. Okay. Anyway, there's a few kind of key things that I think of when I think of Shakespeare as a writer. I, he was an adapter, bordering on a plagiarist, but copyright law didn't exist back then, so... Lucky him. Um, a collaborator. And... A savvy businessman. Yeah? Like, he knew what was popular, and he wrote to that. He knew what audiences wanted. It's part of the reason I think he was as successful as he was. But we will get to that towards the end. That was just a little, little teaser. A little foreshadowing Ooh. for you. Ooh, I'm excited. I'm titillated. <laughs> I think that, just in general, we have to embrace this image 
more kind of on a general society level for two reasons. One, I think it makes him a lot less intimidating of a figure. You know, I think there's a lot of kids going into classrooms to learn Shakespeare and it feels very intimidating. It, there's a lot of weight to it. There's years of scholarship behind it. But I think that while that's not going to go away, if we stop thinking of, you know, Shakespeare as this demigod of writing. This unattainable, perfect example. Yeah, we can start to better appreciate his writing for what it is. You know, because I think a lot of times, too, you know, when we're talking about Shakespeare as this genius writer, we're talking about Macbeth, we're talking about Hamlet, we're talking about King Lear. And that was not all of his plays. All of his plays were not Hamlet. There were some Henry VI in there and Henry VIII, and those were and special. And so much ado about nothing. Well, yes, but that would be up there with one of the good ones. Oh, yeah, I was thinking of the dirty ones, though. Oh, okay. Oh, the, 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 the good ones are pretty dirty. That's fair. And then I also think that, as always, it helps in my quest to combat the anti-Strafferdian arguments because a lot of their arguments are based on total misconceptions. That, you know, in their mind, whoever Shakespeare was, he had to have been at court, highly educated, gone to college, traveled the world, which through various podcasts we have proven is not necessarily true that that he had to be those things. But I think when we also consider, you know, they're like, well, he must have traveled to Italy because he wrote about all these Italian settings. I'm like, or he stole from all these Italian plays. No, 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 no. James Cameron definitely went to Alpha Centauri, right? How else could he have written the seminal masterpiece, Avatar? I mean, to his credit, he did go to Titanic. That's true, he did, didn't he? Yes. But yeah, I think that there are some really good reasons to think critically about how Shakespeare was as a writer, just to make him human. Yeah, because in schools, he's not treated as human. He's not. He's treated as the genre. Exactly. So I think probably the best and frankly easiest place to start is with his role as an adapter of stories. Um, We've talked about this a lot of times. We have an entire collection of podcast episodes dedicated to the source material behind different Shakespeare plays. What? I think even there, you know, I've I've started with some of the low-hanging fruit on his source material because, well, it's easy. Yeah. (laughs) And it's some of the more popular plays, too. We're parents. Sometimes we have to do the easy thing. Sometimes I gotta pick the low-hanging fruit. (sighs) Lots of low-hanging fruit. Anyway... Um, but we've really just scratched the surface oh, of yeah. some of this, of most of the source material. And I think a lot of times if you asked people that Shakespeare, you know, pulled from source material, their minds are going to jump straight to, like, the histories, like all the Henrys and the Richards and Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra, you know, and they're going to say, oh, well, yeah, of course those were adapted, they were real events. While that's obvious, there are even some based on the same historical texts that you wouldn't expect. Like Macbeth. I pay attention when you talk sometimes. Sometimes you missed our whole grammar school episode apparently though, so. I don't think we had that episode. (sighs) I hate your face. Macbeth, King Lear, Coriolanus, 
and the lesser love Timon of Athens. Who doesn't love Timon of Athens? It's almost as good of, as Pumbaa of Sparta. All of these texts are e- either pulled from Holland Shed's histories of England, Scotland, and Ireland, or Plutarch's parallel lives. All of them? I mean, all of the ones I listed. Not all the plays. I was surprised to learn King Lear was based on it. Yeah, I knew that one. So, like, the story of the three girls uh, being asked that question by their father and the actually nice uh, mm-hmm. daughter uh, giving the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. That's an old fairy tale trope that I expected he pulled from places. Yeah, but I mean, King Lear was an actual, like, king of England. That's what in england at least <sighs> man nothing nothing is original no i know that's what i i, I do always kind of laugh when people are like no one writes original stories anymore and i'm like no one did <laughs> these stories all came up at the same time even looking beyond the history though most of his other plays have some sort of source material some are more loosely based than others but we can tag them down to Ovid's Metamorphosis or a variety of Italian plays or poems. Romeo and Juliet uh, is actually an Italian story. Oh, really? Yeah, that's why if you go to uh, Verona, you can see Juliet's balcony. Oh, there was an actual Juliet? It was a real thing? Probably that balcony. It's a little bit of like, you know, legend. She lived around here. That's her balcony. But there was the story of the warring families and the kids. I, I for, Their names were slightly different. It wasn't quite Romeo and Juliet, but okay. um, that's mean, actually, I have that planned for an upcoming episode. I mean, from what I know about medieval Italy, I'm not surprised that there are legit stories of a few families that just murdered each other all the time. Yes. People will write letters to Juliet and stuff. Yeah, like you can go visit her balcony. Interesting. Yeah, so, and I think it's just the balcony in the house that that family owned. Mm. You know, is more of it. But Twelfth Night, Comedy of Errors, Troilus and Cressida, Hamlet, all based on previous works. Hamlet was actually a Norse tale. They think it might have been an earlier play that Shakespeare's like, that was pretty popular. I'm going to do it again, but better. Oh, so he was throwing shade at that early play. Maybe. There's two theories. There's either there was an earlier play that he's like, I can make that better. Or it was his play. And he was like, I can make that better. (laughs) Um, But we just don't know for sure. (laughs) There's not a lot of times that uh, a modern filmmaker has been like, you know, I did a bad job. I'm going to do it again. I'll try again. Troilus and Cressida is based on Chaucer. You know, we've talked about that before. I think a lot of times because the source material is not as popular as the Shakespeare play. So I think a lot of people would be surprised just how many of the plays have source material. Like, I've only just named a few of some of the bigger ones that I know. Yeah, it's most of the plays you think of when you think of Shakespeare have source material. Unless it's about a girl dressing up as a boy and running around in the woods. I actually don't know for sure if As You Like It doesn't have source material. Well, geez, Shaky. I'd have to get my glow book and I'll have that with me right now. There's a really good glow book that gives just a little breakdown of each play, including a little bit of like performance history of like famous performances probably done at the Globe. 
and then um, but at the top it lists the source material interesting yeah it's very helpful uh, but there's really just a couple plays that have no source material that we know of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream The Tempest and I at least the, and I believe The Merry Wives of Windsor oh two out of three are very well regarded and the other one is very funny and I will fight you if you don't like it yeah Mary Wives of Windsor is a great play they were probably all likely influenced by some other text you know and Mary Wives of Windsor like city comedies were pretty popular you know when we went um, there was a Xavier University professor who talked before the play started and it was kind of unusual that Shakespeare only wrote one city comedy yeah they were kind of like the sitcom of the day yeah how, like, in the 90s, every sitcom was set in New York. And I think a lot of times when there's the idea that he was adapting a story rather than coming up with something original, it somehow cheapens the image. You know what I mean? That, like, oh, it wasn't original, so... Yeah, I think a lot of people hear that he was adapting plays or ripping off Holland Shed almost word for word. Mm-hmm. It's almost like people think that if everything didn't spring directly from Shakespeare's beautiful brain, then the emotions they feel aren't as valid. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. If, I don't care if he, he stole a bunch of crap. He still made me hurt inside. This whole idea of Shakespeare as an adapter, um, I think, was very well put by uh, Stuart Kells in his book, Shakespeare's Library, Unlocking the Greatest Mystery in Literature. He says, many different verbs have been used to describe what Shakespeare was doing. He acquired, adapted, appropriated, converted, revised, synthesized, improved, borrowed, copied, co-opted, reused, reworked, repackaged, stole. Let us again remember he worked at a time when authorship, plagiarism, and copyright were differently conceived. That's a good point. We kind of think of the idea of ownership and copyright as being permanent aspects of how art has always been, and they're constructed. Theater historians have talked about Hamlet being influenced possibly by an earlier version of Hamlet by a different playwright. That was pretty normal for playwrights to steal each other's ideas. I mean, people still steal each other's ideas all the time. They're just not allowed to call it the same name. It shouldn't cheapen it, though, because it still requires talent to take something and transform it for a live performance, to have it resonate with us, even today. Like, to hit that emotional level. You know, there's a reason no one reads Holland Shed. We aren't reading the (laughs) Italian Romeo and Juliet poem. That's true. I don't read Italian at all. Mia culpa. Plutarch, even though he's an amazing historical source, like, he, you know... That's why Julius Caesar is actually a pretty accurate portrayal to what happened. Yeah, but, you know, most people aren't going to read Plutarch. They're going to, if they have any interaction with the story of Julius Caesar's death at all, it's going to be through the HBO show. And then maybe Shakespeare. How dare you, sir? (laughs) Another idea that seems to somehow kind of cheapen Shakespeare which again I don't think it should is that he collaborated with other people now hold on a second I'm pretty sure that every great piece of art is the sole work of a single person like Stanley Kubrick making 2001 A Space Odyssey alone and with no help at all well and I'm glad you break up the movies because 
like writers rooms are totally normal oh yeah there's a head writer of something but there's tons of there's other writers contributing so why is it that bizarre for us to imagine Shakespeare sitting down with other writers to work or with actors who have input on their lines well exactly and and so I think well we'll get to the actors and stuff in a minute you know because we the there's been a few articles that are like oh hot button news that you know new textual analysis exposed one of Shakespeare's collaborators which most of them have been long suspected well, yeah, but when it reaches mainstream news, it has to be, uh, you know, we found this out, this secret that no one knew before except for all of the people who really suspected already. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you look at Titus and you're like, ooh, dang, sir. Dang. Oh, yeah. It's a... And George Peel was, like, a notoriously violent writer. Well, there you go. It makes sense. Although I have to say the fact that Christopher Marlowe collaborated with Shakespeare on Henry VI... That doesn't reflect well on Christopher Marlowe. It really doesn't. And that was another big one that actually, like, took a lot of people by surprise. Because um, that was when I believe the Oxford editions released a version, a new printing of Henry VI that listed Christopher Marlowe as a co-writer. And I think in part it caused a big hollow blue because it's like, you know, there were the people who were like, no, Shakespeare wrote all by himself all the time. And then I think there were the people like, no, Shakespeare wasn't even Shakespeare. There's no way Marlowe wrote this. And I'm like, stop it. Um, Uh, Two wrong sides arguing about who can be wronger. Part of that, too, was there were some questions over the validity of the textual analysis you know, and I think there's always going to be that question, you know, did, how much did Shakespeare write versus, like, how much did Marlowe, like, actually write or just Shakespeare was influenced by Marlowe? You know, because I think there are limitations to textual analysis. I tend to, you know, give a side eye to the ones that are like, I can tell you exactly who wrote which words. Like, can you, though? Mm. Can you really? I choose to doubt this. Um, but I think that when you, like with a lot of different kind of statistical analysis, if you have a broader pool, you can see trends. And so you can see where, like, there's definitely Marlowe's speech patterns in here along with Shakespeare's. And it would make sense. Marlowe was pretty well established when Shakespeare was kind of getting into the game. So it would make sense for him to learn off of Marlowe. I said earlier, they borrowed from each other all the time. All of them. So they're all thieves. Yes. Good job. Thieving Brits. I'm calling you out. Stop it. But, you know, I think that it's worth kind of looking at textual analysis with with some skepticism, but I think it can help reinforce already, you know, suspected theories. Like, Henry VIII was written towards the very end of Shakespeare's career. So... The common belief is that at that point he was going back to Stratford more. Um, some hints of that are that there were more stage directions in his later plays. Um, but they, you know, the John Fletcher was kind of coming in, you know, kind of next, the next up and comer. So he probably worked with Shakespeare on 
Oh, kind of like how Christopher Marlowe helped uh, Shakespeare out in the beginning. Probably, yeah. Oh, so the, the circle's complete. Yep, circle of life. Yeah. And both plays, not good. It's funny how things just come right around like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And as you said before, and as we hinted out with the stage directions, is that Shakespeare collaborated with his acting troupe. Like, we know from his writing, he was intimately familiar with everyone in the troupe. And with the you know kind of machinations of theater like he knew how to work in that world there's one book i was reading it was one of my shakespeare biographies and i just can't remember which one that talked about how like there were writings from some of the actors at the time about like they liked working with shakespeare because he knew the theater there was kind of this notable lack of stage direction which would indicate to uh, which indicates to a lot of kind of theater experts that he was working with the troupe to come up with what was happening physically on stage. Which is kind of what happens in modern Shakespeare troupes. Yeah, I mean, that's what they have to do, because there is no stage direction. Exit Pursued by Bear is one of like the most famous pieces of stage direction, which is my favorite. Yeah, it's a lot less funny when you're watching the play. Yeah, it is. It... <laughs> well, because when you're watching it, it's just a person being pursued by a bear, and you're like, oh no. But in his later plays, there's more stage direction. And that's what kind of gives the hint of, like, maybe he wasn't at the theater as much as he was kind of in the middle chunk of his career. Interesting. Literally. So in his, his sunset years, he was back in Stratford with his family more often, maybe. Maybe. I mean, we'll never know for sure, and I mean, we have to be okay with that. But there's there's things we can look at to provide evidence for, you know, he was probably not at the theater that much. But he also, like, when he was writing, there are times, and it made it into, I think, at least one of the folios, um, certainly some of the quartos, in lines even, you can see where they wrote down the name of the actor instead of oh. the character so, so he, like he, he was, messed up he was thinking of the actor yeah because he wrote them for specific actors after will kemp left the troupe there was you know a new kind of fool for the group that had we assume more musical ability because all of a sudden the fool started singing a whole lot more oh that makes sense. And that's why a lot of times I think we see the same characters kind of over and over again in Shakespeare. It's, it's like uh, today when we watch a uh, play by our local Shakespeare company, you have the same actors playing the fools almost every time, even though the lead actors can shift quite a bit. Yeah, and it's because or... it takes a certain amount of skill to be able to do that and do it well. For me lately, after I, especially after I read Antony and Cleopatra, and as I've been working through Macbeth again, all I can think about is they must have had some very talented apprentices, like young men to play these women. Oh yeah, those were the apprentices. Yeah, usually young boys. Oh yeah, I probably guess... pre or just post puberty. Yeah, I guess I, uh, I knew they were young boys, but it didn't occur to me that they were the apprentice actors. Well, I mean, just because they were young and some of them didn't stay in theater. I read a theory that that's why Shakespeare wrote such well-rounded female characters. It's because he was trying to train young actors to take on lead roles. Oh. So if you're writing fluff women roles, they're never going to learn the skills necessary to be a Hamlet. I don't know when we decided that 
genius must be accomplished alone. But people rarely accomplish genius things alone. So I don't know why we decided that, it, you know, for, for people of the past to have been amazing, they must have done it alone. Look at uh, Thomas Edison. He had a workshop where he paid a lot of people to invent things for him and then took responsibility or, that, or took credit for their inventions. So everyone says, well, Thomas Edison invented all this. The last thing that tends to kind of, we don't like to think of Shakespeare this way, is that he was a savvy businessman. He knew what he was doing. He knew how to make money. He knew what was popular, and he wrote to that. No, Sarah, when you make art, it exists in a vacuum, see? Mm-hmm. With that, you know, in um, Catherine Arnold's Globe, Life in Shakespeare's London, she talks about the Henry VI, Richard III, all these big history plays. What these plays do indicate is that Shakespeare, always swift to latch on to the newest theatrical fashion, had grasped the fact that history plays were the latest craze and audiences, both rich and poor, were fascinated by true life tales of royalty and the struggle for supremacy. And like I couldn't have put it any better. Like, you know, the people wanted histories, he wrote a bunch of histories. Oh, they liked that Falstaff guy. I'll write another play about him. When you think about it, most of his history plays were about some civil strife. It wasn't about a monarch reigning in peace and nothing really bad happens. It was, oh, someone's rebelling. Oh, our hero's rebelling. Oh, another rebe rebellion has happened. And it was people kind of wanting to reflect on their history, but and even their recent history. Like, he wrote about the Wars of the Roses for the most part. But I have a new Scottish king that's, you know, very superstitious about witches. Alright, Macbeth! Ooh, is there witches at Macbeth? No. Oh. Not, not, not. I, f I figured there would be some witches. <laughs> from, from your setup there, I thought yeah, that would be no, the they do. Oh, that other Hamlet play was popular. I'll make my own! <laughs> Woo! You know, so it's... It, and it worked for him. Clearly. Like, he became pretty well-known. He bought the big, the second biggest house in Stratford. He you, was able to become partner in a theater. Two theaters, actually. Do you think his wife would always point out that it was the second biggest house in Stratford? Probably. Yeah. I would. I mean, I know you would. That's why I asked. He secured the family's coat of arms. And his troop actually purchased one of the first indoor theaters. So, yeah, he... He was a success. Yeah, he was a success. He might not have been, like, wildly famous for time, but they, you know, King James did become the patron of their troop for a while there. So you're saying the, the king is a pretty decent patron? I'd assume so. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's got the whole royal coffers there. That's true. And he had the royal coffers of England and Scotland. Ooh! He also had probably Anne running there side malt business oh yeah gotta make that money somehow though but i think that somehow over time being kind of a shrewd businessman is like does not compute with a good artist oh yeah the whole idea of the artiste does not soil his hands with considerations of budget 
as though there aren't wonderful artists who are excellent business people. I, I don't get it. He had to make, this was his livelihood. He had to make money. It's not like he came from a wealthy family and was just writing for funsies. This was his income. He had to be good at it. As much as we like to romanticize the idea of being a starving artist, it's much better to be a fed artist. Yeah. Because you get to eat. And frankly, I think if anything, having business success and being a good kind of like strategist in that sense of like, what plays are popular? What should I write next? You know, oh, we've had a few tragedies. Let's, let's have a comedy. Looking at that is to me shows that he was actually pretty intelligent and, and not just book smart, but like he knew how to work the theater scene. And I just don't, I like, that's one that kind of just baffles me that I'm like, you know, like if you ever mention to some people that like, oh, they probably had a shady side malt business. They're like, no. Oh yeah. I mean, the idea of Shakespeare, this unattainable artist, when you ground it in the fact that his wife was running their malt business and he was following popular trends, Suddenly, he's not an unattainable artist. He's an artist and businessman who's just doing his best to get by. And, you know, the idea of being a popular artist doesn't gel with people who want their artists to be these pure, unsoiled ideals. Yeah. He was still a person at the end of the yeah. day. You know, like, it just th those are facts. Like, he just was a person. You know, I want to stress so much that... Although I've said like, oh, these ideas kind of cheapen the image, it doesn't have to. To me, it enhances it. Like, he was still just a dude, but had an amazing gift for bringing stories to life that, and he, he got better over time. He honed his craft. How? By working with others. Yeah, there's, the idea of Shakespeare is something unattainable completely discounts the story of a guy from the North Country who came to London and worked hard at his craft and honed his skills mm -hmm. and was able to achieve a level of success that helped his family back home. It's commendable to, th to see him for who he was and also, you know, remember that we have his work because... Some of his friends and fellow actors were like, we should write this down. And they remembered it. Yeah, he didn't collect his own works to print. He didn't. It was the impact he left on the people around him that led to his work getting published. I think along with this, along with looking at this image of a writer, it makes it okay for us to say some of his plays are just all right, even bad. He was still just a dude who just wrote some writing. Some people are going to like it. It's not going to drive with others. And some of it was just okay. Yeah. And that's okay. <laughs> Thus ends another episode of Breaking Bard. Please join us next time when we discuss Love Labors 1, one of Shakespeare's lost plays. If you want to make sure you don't miss that or any future episodes, make sure to hit subscribe. If you like the podcast, please consider giving it a five-star review and sharing with your friends. For more Shakespeare fun in the meantime, check out my blog at ripegoodscholar.com or look me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at ripegoodscholar. 
You should also check out my new YouTube channel, where I just launched a series on Macbeth. Just search Ripe Good Scholar on YouTube. See you next time, and remember, our court shall be a little academic, still and contemplative in living art.